Hello and welcome back to Tuesday at Dobbs's. This week's episode is sponsored by Excel Moto. That's the one-stop shop for all things biking related. Whether you're looking for parts for your bike, clothing and gear to wear, and also servicing bits of equipment to work on your bike. It's the one-stop shop for everything to do with your bike. All of the details in the written description below. As always, please do carry on to get in touch with your thoughts and opinions because that is what makes this weekly podcast. So I hugely appreciate all of the input. Comment section below, best place to do so. But if you've got a longer story, maybe with some pictures, you can email hi at tuesdayatdobbs.com. And there's also an Instagram page, tuesday underscore at underscore Dobbs. Let me begin this week. America's love or not of Harley Davidson. This is from Matthew. Freddie, why is it we consistently write in and tell you that Harley is not the king in America anymore? In fact, it is not respected nor affordable. Ridden by mostly old baby boomers and Gen X, yet you consistently seem to think that Harley is king here. The reality is motorcycles are dying here in the US. You said that in a recent video, Harley-Davidson is king and BMW is trying to dethrone it with the BMW R18, but Harley-Davidson hasn't been king here for 20 years. This topic often pops up, the US and Harley-Davidson, and it is almost a complete split between the older generation, let's say 50 years and older, and the younger generation, 25 and onwards or so. The older generation seem to, not universally, but they seem to love Harley-Davidson. But I get so much negative input and insight from younger Americans who not just are indifferent to Harley-Davidson's, but who downright hate them. They hate everything that Harley-Davidson's associated with. They hate everything that they stand for. It's a really interesting thing because for me, Harley-Davidson's are beautiful. They're beautifully mechanical bits of machinery, but that is not often how they're seen in the US. It's a brilliant insight, and I, I find it fascinating. Matthew, thank you for that. I move on. The value of shopping around. This is from Brian. Freddie, with reference to second-hand BMW GS prices. I'm in the UK and this year put my 2016 BMW R1200 GSTE spec up for sale. I either got chances offering ridiculously low ball money without seeing it or low offers from some dealers or like one of your other commentators stated that BMW as a main dealer were just not interested. So my bike has only done 2,600 miles and was in the showroom or was in showroom condition. It got to the stage that I thought I would either have to sell it ludicrously cheap or just keep it. Thankfully, I was thinking of having a modern classic as my next bike and was looking at the Royal Enfield Interceptor or the Triumph Bonneville. Again, the Royal Enfield dealer only offered £6,000 against potentially buying an Interceptor or a Himalayan. However, this is interesting. Thankfully, Triumph, without hesitation, offered me £10,000. 
Thinking this would be against the most expensive bikes in Triumph's range, I was assured that it was on anything I pick in the showroom. A deal done and I'm a happy biker with a brand new Triumph Bonneville T100 and cash in my back pocket. Winner. Brian, that is seriously good insight and tip for anyone looking at a new bike and looking to part exchange. You've just saved or made £4,000. £4,000 from going from a Royal Enfield dealer, seeing how much they were given Partex, to Triumph, who would offer you four grand more for the same bike. And also interesting, Brian, my guess is you had this up on Facebook Marketplace with all of the chances, ridiculously low-ball bids. It is a minefield trying to sell a vehicle yourself. I, I do know that from from a few friends of mine, it's difficult. And this takes me on perfectly to the next section, Facebook Marketplace. Freddie, please, 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 do not buy a car or motorbike off of Facebook Marketplace. Three exclamations after that. The majority of vehicles we recover, and apologies, Jeff, I'm, I'm not exactly sure if we refers to the police, it may well do, I'm just guessing there. I continue, the, the majority of vehicles that we recover are stolen, cloned, and advertised on Facebook Marketplace. Sometimes we get them before they're sold on, others we take off. Innocent purchases after they have parted with thousands of pounds. Jeff. Uh, Jeff, this is the problem with Facebook Marketplace. You can get a good deal, but you have to deal with so much nonsense, so many scammers, it's insane. It seems that nothing is being done to try and cut back on this by Facebook, because I would say, if you're looking for vehicles, especially the more expensive ones, probably 70% of vehicles I see on Facebook Marketplace. I look at Jeep Wranglers a lot, for example. 70%, I would say, fraudulent. The reason I know that, the prices are half the price and they just copy and paste the same generic stuff that's not related to that vehicle. This is from Ralph. Freddie, I'm not sure why you bang on about Facebook Marketplace and yet you are totally aware of the scammers out there. The site should be scrapped. It's a joke. Um, Ralph, there's, there's a large chunk of truth there. Now this is, this is where I'm going to wrap up, carburetted bikes and the debate. Can carburetted bikes genuinely be used in the modern world in 2023 or are they relics of a bygone era? I've tried to, and I had a huge amount of input here. I spent about 20 minutes cutting back and whittling all of the input I had. So I've tried to give as balanced a possible insight as I can. But I will say before I start this, in case I forget, I would say genuinely 85% of people who commented on this said that carburetted bikes have no real issues at all. They're incredibly easy to live with and a lot of people prefer carburetted bikes to fuel injection because they say they're simply simpler than fuel injected bikes. Have a listen to a, a few different people here. Freddie, the discussion of carburetted bikes is timely. I own a 1999 Honda Shadow. It's my first bike and I love it, but it's given me some trouble over the past two and a half years. 
As an example, a few weekends ago, it completely died on the highway with my wife on the back. After an expensive tow and an even more expensive mechanical bill, we found out that the carburetor needed a full clean and rebuild. Cleaning a carburetor is an expected maintenance item for a bike like this, but to have the bike die under you is a scary experience for sure, especially on a California freeway. My bike or my next bike will be fuel injected. Attached is a picture of the tow truck driver scent of my bike dead on the side of the road, Ryan from LA. Moving on to Dave, pictures included here. Freddie, just back from an 800 mile, four day mini tour of North Wales in the most foul weather, Storm Babbitt, although one day was dry. The bike you see in the picture being washed is a Kawasaki Z1A900. This is incredible, which is 49 years old, has four carbs and an old school contact points ignition. It and its rider braved almost hurricane force winds, slashing rain, being left out all night in the weather. E10 fuel as E5 was hard to come by and still started on the button every morning without complaint and delivered me home safely without any issues. I think reliability is directly proportional to simplicity. Regards, Dave. From Walt. Freddie, you say old car bikes are less reliable than newer injected bikes. Okay, but is that the age or the fueling? Walt, so let me jump in here. You've brought up something that for some reason I have completely disregarded and overlooked about carburetted bikes because I give carburetted bikes a bad time. Saying they're unreliable or less reliable and easy to live with than fuel-injected bikes, but that is, of course, and I can't believe I've overlooked that, carburetted bikes are all, generally speaking, much older than fuel-injected bikes. So we're not really comparing like for like when I say that, oh yes, but carbed bikes are more unreliable. Well, yes, that's because they can be 50, 40 years old, and I'm comparing that reliability to a five or six-year-old bike. It's not a fair comparison that I've been making. I continue from Walt. All of my bikes until last year have been carbed. They were mainly reliable. Now one is 21 years old and is having problems. But my injected car that was bought new in the same year as the bike had injector problems when it was 16 years old and became uneconomical to repair, so it went. I draw no conclusions from this. My fuel injection bike threw up an engine management light within the first few hundred miles. With fuel injection comes fuel pumps and all the high pressure sensors. I suspect when some of these bikes are too old, they too will suffer reliability issues and might be difficult for us home mechanics to fix. On to Barney. Freddie, I recently sold a 1999 Honda Valkyrie GL1500, which I bought nine years ago. It has six carbs. Imagine the work cleaning and balancing those. After initial adjustment, when I rebuilt it, I never had to do anything again. That is until I put E10 fuel in it. It ran like a bag of spanners, pinking and running rough all the time. I then put Super E5 in it and it was back to its old self. Lovely. Carbs using E10, mm -mm, 
Sonono. Stephen, my 2003 Bandit 600S has been refused work on, saying it was too much trouble to tune. That's all in block capitals, so a good amount of anger from Stephen, and I would be too, Stephen, in that situation. Should mechanics, as a given, be able to work on carved bikes? Should they still be trained to understand how to work on carved bikes? So is that just unrealistic for us to expect mechanics to be able to understand and work on carved bikes and also injected bikes? Mm, it's a gray area in my eyes. I guess the market dictates the knowledge that you're taught. On to Sussex, biker Pillion. Recently bought a Honda ST1100, lovely mechanical condition with carbs, running a bit lumpy, but not as responsive as it should be. I then added, have a look at this. I then added sea foam fuel additive to the tank. And after a couple of tanks, it's now running fine. No strip hassle at all. I think I may have saved this. A few people said this, and it's not just for carved bikes, but fuel injected. Seafoam, I wanted to bring it up because a number of recommendations. It's a motor treatment and it's called, and I'm reading on their website, so do bear that in mind. The can for every engine. Cleans fuel injector and carburetor passageways. Cleans intake valve and chamber deposits. Lubricates upper cylinders. Works in the crankcase oil to liquefy harmful residue and deposits. And, and here's the key, if you own a carved bike, or maybe even fuel injected, it stabilizes the gas petrol, if you're British, stabilises the gas and diesel fuels for up to two years. Meaning, if you own a carbed bike, you take it off the road for the winter, you put some of this seafoam treatment in and it will stabilise the fuel, meaning you won't get any blocked jets, blocked carbs, whatever the right saying is. So that comes highly recommended from a good handful of people. I move on to Alex. I'm over here in the US and all of the petrol pumps have some percentage of ethanol in the petrol. This nasty stuff melted the tank and destroyed the petcock seals on my reliably carburetted 1997 Buell S3. On to Crocoben. My Bandit 1200 Mark One. That's a special bike. That's a special bike. Served me well for 20 years. Still does. Never touched the carbs or anything. Never with any issues. Zero. On to Moriwaki. Just been all over Europe on my 1985 750 Suzuki GSXR. That's brilliant. Brilliant. I would say that's really brave, but I guess if you know your bike, it can be as, as reliable as anything else if you look after it, and clearly you do. Not, I continue, not one problem. My mate's fuel injected bike, however, was nothing but bother. I, and I mean this hand on heart, I really do. I'm not just saying it. Seeing all of your input on carved bikes and a huge amount of people seem to say that they're so much simpler than fuel injected bikes. There's far, far less to go wrong in them. And as time goes on and these electricals break on our fuel injected bikes, the costs will get more and more expensive, but with carbed bikes, it's such a simple technology. As long as either you, the, ma 
as long as either you, the owner of the bike, or a knowledgeable mechanic is in place to fix and fettle them, they will go on forever because they're such a simple technology. So I genuinely have been worked around to it. A lot of people again say that if you do have a carved bike, either go on a quick mechanical course or teach yourself how to do it with books or YouTube. And once you've learned how to do it, they're really not that daunting at all. And you can look after your bike and it will run pretty much forever. Here's a bit of heartbreak. I'll, I'll wrap this up as well. The old close to worthless Honda Goldwings. These are the American made Goldwings from the 1980s. Lovely looking bikes. I said that six grand will get you a good condition one in the UK, but my Lord, they're rare. They're worthless though. And I really do mean worthless in North America, Canada and the US. And I've got a bit of insight and about five people mentioned this, but I'll read Mark's out. Have a listen to this if you're considering a classic Goldwing. I had, this is from Mark, I had one of these naked Goldwings from the 80s. The thing with these is they have a charging system stator located deep within the motor. So when your battery won't charge and the lights and motor stop, you would have to remove the motor from the bike and split the motor case open to get to the charging stator. The labor from a shop is more than a motorcycle's worth. So if you do it yourself and like all of that work, the mechanical DIY, then buy one. Mark, that's extremely useful advice. A lot of you won't believe this and a lot of you are going to be angry here. This is from Jennifer in Alberta. Get ready for this. Okay, where shall I start? Okay, okay. Freddie, it's, it's sad to say that the beloved Goldwing of the 1980s is sadly diminished in value, that the ones that have been sat and need carbs cleaned and or the brakes seized are sold for such low dollars or scrapped because no one wants to pay $1,000 or more to a shop to get it running again. That is, if you can even find a shop willing to work on the bikes to do the carbs, as it's a huge job and fewer mechanics out there will even do it. I close with a link to our shop's TikTok channel where we videoed a nearly complete Honda Goldwing GL1100 being dropped in a scrap metal bin. Yes, it's true that we had so many, even in our motorcycle boneyard. Oh, okay, I'm putting the video up here now because I watched this about an hour ago. Video up as I carry on talking of the Goldwing, a complete Goldwing, literally being lifted up by a forklift truck and dumped into a dumpster like it's an old dishwasher, a complete Goldwing. I carry on. Yes, it's true, we had so many Goldwings, even in our motorcycle boneyard, that we did throw some away for space. The video got thousands of replies with many of them expressing anger and sadness at the loss of the Goldwing. Who knew that other countries, this bike would be such a rarity? Jennifer Alberta. Jennifer, I watched that video about 10 times in amazement. But I guess if, if a bike is worthless and no one wants to buy it, then it's worthless and no one wants to buy it. There's nothing you can do about it. I, I think these old gold rings, tell me if I'm wrong some, someone, they're old 
their cards. So they could in theory be simple, but there are just too many really expensive jobs that if you're not mechanically inclined, you're going to be spending a thousand dollars a time at the mechanic. Jennifer, thank you. I move on. A police bike success story with with regards to buying old police motorcycles. And this was a really polarizing subject. I, I've mentioned that some people said or thought that police bikes get their mileage clocked, where they get the mileage rolled back and where they're not well maintained and they're just ragged and abused and they're, they're just not good bikes. They're not good bikes to buy. But I've got another side of it here from two listeners. I'll begin with Barry. And there are pictures here, so I'll put the pictures up as I discuss. Freddie, on the subject of ex-police bikes, I've owned my 2007 BMW R1200 RTP for nearly six years. It had only covered 32,000 miles when I purchased it in February 2018 and came with correct documentation to prove the mileage and police servicing and repairs. I have done a little over 15,000 miles to date with a mixture of day trips and European tours. And in this time, other than the well-documented fuel level strip failure, the bike has been faultless. The added bonus of these ex-police bikes is that they lend themselves to adaptations, i.e. extra lighting, camera equipment, sat-navs, etc. due to the higher power alternator. I didn't know this. Second, I continue, second auxiliary battery and all of the spare power connectors from when the police removed their equipment, for which on my bike was no less than eight spare power connectors on the bike. In 2020, during the first lockdown and bored, stuck at home, I built a trailer. I love this. I love this picture here. I built a trailer to tow behind my bike to be able to escape once we were able to do so and makes for an amazing touring outfit. There are bargains to be had with these bikes, but as wisely stated, you have to be careful where you purchase these bikes from. Barry. Barry, I can imagine during lockdown, got your massive BMW in your garage, just making a trailer daydreaming about exploring the world and freedom and adventure. It's a brilliant, brilliant setup. I love it. I'll do one more as well for a nice balanced argument on police bikes and it wraps it up nicely. This is from Russ. Right, let's get something very clear. I have several good friends who have spent their life servicing and maintaining police vehicles, also serving police officers. Police vehicles are never clocked. Accurate records are kept. They are serviced to the manufacturer's specification using genuine parts only, not eBay Chinese junk. Secondly, the lack of MOT does not mean that they are unsafe. They have a continual rolling maintenance schedule. If a vehicle is used in a pursuit, then it has to go in to have the pads checked for excessive wear. All of this is publicly accountable and on record. Many of these vehicles are leased. Do you really think the leasing companies would condone clocking these vehicles? What would be the point? 
they're working vehicles and at a certain point will be disposed of. I would rather an ex-police fleet vehicle than some chav's car that only gets the bare minimum done to pass the test. Russ, thank you so much. I agree with you as well. I, I think the police, there is no way they will skimp on, on maintenance of a vehicle. I'm moving on to bike of the week. This is from John J. Freddie, I've not heard you mention the Honda Varadero XL11 or XL1000 before. I'm six foot four, so usually stick to the bigger framed bikes. Over my 50 years of riding, I've had loads of bikes, including a Goldwing, F6C and Triumph Rocket. But six years ago, I bought this 2011 Varadero picture attached. And I have to say, it's one of the best all-round bikes I have ever ridden. Extremely comfortable, can carry a lot of luggage and handles very well indeed. Honda discontinued the XL1000 in 2012, but being Honda, it's been absolutely reliable, excepting, now this is brilliant consumer advice if you're in the market for one of these, because this is a real way you could pick up a bargain and or fix what could be deemed a bit of a nightmare bike or a faulty bike. So have a listen to this because this is genuinely good consumer advice. Here goes, been absolutely reliable, excepting one problem which affected a lot of Varadero thousands and could be the reason they weren't as popular. A second-hand bike can be bought quite cheaply. A very low mileage mint late model would be only four to five thousand pounds, sometimes even less. But the problem with these bikes was the pulse generator. There was a common fault with a large batch of them used in the XL 1000s. The bike would still run, but would have episodes of not being easy to start with the fuel injection lights not going out and the fuel pump not priming. The Varadero forums are full of people with owners trying all kinds of easy fixes like fuses, relays, kill switch, etc. But the answer is always to change the pulse generator. It's a fairly easy job for most home tinkerers and I think from memory, it cost me £80 six years ago for the part. I've seen people getting so fed up with having this problem and just sell the bike and move on. So it is possible to find some really good examples of this bike. And once you sort the pulse generator, it will go on for years with the running costs being very low indeed. John, thank you. Wikipedia. Let me give you a brief insight into this bike and a, a background. The Honda XL1000 Varadero is a dual sport motorcycle produced by Honda. Different models have been produced from 98 to 2013. MCN, continue. In theory, the XL1000 Varadero is a great idea. You take the funky Firestorm motor and put it in an adventure touring chassis, but, but, the result didn't live up to that, and the Honda Varadero 1000 hasn't matched the success of the BMW R1150GS. While it has bags of comfort, luggage capacity and grunt, its thirsty engine, top-heavy handling and plain-jane looks haven't helped it win friends. The Varadero 1000 benefits from the firm's legendary reliability 
as you'll see from our owner's reviews. It might not be the most interesting bike on the planet, but it'll make for a trusty companion. I found one here to wrap it up. Facebook Marketplace. Apologies, apologies, I know it's controversial. This is a Honda Varadero from 2007, and this is the kind of one you want to buy. Have a listen to this. Full Honda luggage, crash bars, heated grips, rear hugger MRA touring screen, new chain and sprockets, new battery, 26,000 miles, and the key thing here, no Partex as selling due to ill health. That is as true a reason to sell as you could ever get. Look, this bike is, is not specifically a looker. I can't lie, but that will be not just a good workhorse, but with a 1,000cc Firestorm engine, that, that will be way better than a workhorse. I mean, you can tour Europe, you can tour the world in absolute comfort, two up, massive panniers, quick. I mean, nothing in the real world situation surely would ever, ever leave you on a 1,000cc Honda like that. 3,650 pounds, for a lot of bike like that, and they all became fuel injected in 2003, if you prefer fuel injection. It's a very good shout. John, thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening to this week's episode. Have a fantastic week. I'll speak to you all in the next one.